This morning, uh, we're going to be closing out chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, We'll be picking up in verse 34 and going through the end of the chapter there. And uh, this is a very difficult saying of Jesus. This is this is one of those things that we just don't like to we don't like to dwell on, we don't like to spend a whole lot of time on because it makes us really uncomfortable. Jesus is going to say something here at the beginning of this passage that just it's not one that we like. So we tend to gloss over it, we tend to skip over it, we tend to just, you know, we'll we'll just brush that under the rug and and avoid uh this statement that he makes. Um, it, it just doesn't fit with that popular picture of the tender Jesus, meek and mild. Um, however, it is an important passage because it shows us the full commitment that Christ expects of his followers. So I'm going to invite you all to stand and uh, hear, hear the word of the Lord today. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word even when it's hard for us to hear. I thank you for the truth that that Jesus speaks as he's talking to his disciples, as it's recorded in Scripture, and and because we have that record, it is also for us. Father, I pray that we would handle your word correctly today. I pray that you would help us to understand what Jesus is talking about and how it applies to our lives. We pray all of this because of Jesus. Amen. Please have a seat. So you see why I labeled this a hard saying. We really don't like the idea that Jesus didn't come to bring peace to the earth. Um, uh, first off here, the Jews expected that Jesus came to bring peace for the Jews. They didn't really care about the rest of the world. They expected him to bring the sword to the Gentiles. They expected he was going to deliver them from oppression and that he would conquer the enemies of the Jews and then set up and establish God's kingdom on earth. So this whole statement here probably didn't shock the disciples as much as it does us. It probably did, I don't imagine, because we're not not told that Peter said anything, so I have to imagine it didn't startle them that much, because normally when Peter is startled by something, he puts his foot in his mouth. But we're not told here that Peter says anything. Um. So that that asks the question then, why is it so hard for us to hear? Why is it so hard for us to think that Jesus would come to bring a sword? And and as I got reading and I got studying, um, it it could be because of the the Christmas story that we love so well 
as the shepherds are out on the hillside and the heavenly host appear, and they, they sing glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to men, right? That Jesus' birth, they proclaim peace. It, it could be because uh, in the book of Isaiah, we are told that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So that, then when we read this statement that I have not come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword, it, it kind of clashes with that picture that we have of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, the, the, the one who brings peace to mankind. And that's because we are very comfortable with a peaceful Jesus, because a peaceful Jesus is one that doesn't offend. It's one who doesn't cause disruption in our life. A peaceful Jesus is a kind of milk toast, go along to get along. I don't demand anything from my people. This is just, this is the nice Jesus. This is the popular Jesus. That's what our flesh wants. That's not what we get. Jesus goes on to say that he has come to set families against one another. Son against father, daughter against mother, in-laws, outlaws. Uh, the fifth commandment says we need to honor our parents. So why would Jesus say he's going to cause the families to split like that? The, the members of a household to become enemies. Well, because there's a cost. Because the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that we know, is not the popular Jesus. See, the world is okay with Jesus, the good teacher. The world is okay with Jesus, the prophet, because they don't know what he said. But the world is not okay with Jesus, the Son of God, who commands his followers to be obedient, who commands his sheep to do as the Father says. The world doesn't like that because we don't want to be under anybody's control. The fact of the matter is, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling us to expect that the cost of following him is going to be much greater than anybody could have expected. Now think about for just a second the 12 guys that he's talking to. Okay? You've got Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're fishermen. They're fishermen from Galilee. Not necessarily the, the top level of Jewish society in Israel. Okay? Because they're from Galilee, they're already kind of looked down upon because Galilee is not purely Israel. And because they are fishermen, they're workers, they're uneducated, they're uncouth, they're kind of rough, they're kind of harsh, they're not exactly the best of the best. And then you have Matthew, who's a tax collector. You have uh, uh, Simon the Zealot, who the Zealots were kind of a... Uh, domestic terrorist group, right? <laughs> for, for lack of a better term, they were, they were restoring Israel one way or the other, right? So you have this group of people that are not exactly... And, and So when Jesus called them together, what happened with their status? It was elevated, right? So when Jesus is telling them, don't be surprised when they pull you into the synagogue and they flog you, well... These were people that expected that. These were people that, that that was kind of their lot in life. But what Jesus is telling them now is the people that listen to you, the people that hear you, need to understand. When we surrender to Christ, that relationship takes priority 
above any other relationship. And, and, and I don't mean by priority, I don't mean Jesus is number one and then my wife and family are a close number two. I mean, Jesus is number one and all of my other relationships aren't in the race. He's the only one. Now, that doesn't mean that I cut off all relationships. It doesn't mean that I no longer have a relationship with my wife or my kids or my parents. That's, that's just dumb. That doesn't fit with the picture of Scripture at all. Jesus says that if you love your parents or children more than him, you're not worthy of him at all. In other words, he's repeating the first commandment. You will have what? No other gods before me. And by before me, he means in my presence. There will be nothing that comes before God in God's presence. There will be nothing that you have a relationship with that is closer than your relationship with Christ. Nothing. In Luke 14, 26, which is a parallel passage to this, Jesus says, if anybody comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a hard word. Hate. That's, that's big. Now, now, I've got to put this in perspective because I have heard and I know of historically people who have taken that to really, really, really abuse Scripture and take it out of context and do things that aren't permissible according to Scripture. Jesus is not, by any stretch of the imagination, telling us to stop loving our parents or our children or our spouses or other people. In fact, at the end of the book of John, when he's talking to the disciples, the number of times he tells us that we are supposed to love people would blow your mind if you actually stopped and counted them. It's consistent that we are to love people here. So he's talking in comparative terms. Compared to the love we have for God, the love we have for Jesus, the love that we have for anybody else should be so pale it doesn't even look like the same thing. That even goes for the way we love our own life. And now, don't, don't get all Christian indignant on me, okay? Because we can do that. Well, I know I, I don't love my own life. I, I would gladly sacrifice myself because nobody's in here with a gun at your head. Because nobody's demanding you to sacrifice your life, right? Which one of us does not love our own life? None of us do. We, we all... Self-preservation, I, I learned this when I was in the desert uh, the last time in Kuwait in 2003. Uh, after shock and awe, which worked for me, I was shocked. Okay, after, after we went in, we invaded Iraq and they started shooting missiles back at us. I was in Kuwait, I was a seven-minute scud flight from Iraq. And 17 times we got the alarm read that there were incoming scud missiles. With all but one of those, the missile was shot down before we even got the alarm. And that one was shot down by a Patriot missile that launched from our base when I was in a shelter hiding for my life. And that Patriot missile that went off went supersonic over the base, and I was convinced I was going to die because a sonic boom sounds a lot like a missile exploding. And in and, and, and one day... It was 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. We had some equipment we were working on. And there were three or four of us outside 
waiting to work on it. And uh, you've heard the phrase, long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs? A little bit nervous? Okay, we were nervous. We were, all of us standing outside were kind of bouncing on our toes because we could hear sirens in the distance from missile alerts. So we're standing outside the equipment. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. We're hearing the sirens. You know, we'd been watching the news before we went outside, and there was a, a missile attack on Kuwait City, which is like 14 minutes from us. So we're, we're kind of on edge, to say the least. And then all of a sudden, our base PA system, the microphone keys up, and there's a particular sound it makes. It sounds like an electronic turkey gobble. When that went off, the three of us that were standing outside vaporized. Man, we took off running. There was another person who had come out to meet us for the job that we had to do. She was standing there, and she said all of a sudden there was just dust. And she couldn't hear anything because of our boots pounding the the wooden platforms that we were standing on as we were running for our lives for the bunker. I mean, we were gone just like a shot. And we get into the bunkers and we're getting our gear to put our masks on and everything and and the people that are sleeping in the bunkers are like, what are you doing? What do you mean? Well, there's no alarm. They were letting us know that that was in Kuwait City and it's not here. You're you're still in alarm yellow, not red. So we looked kind of sheepish and got back outside and the, the person outside says, what was that? Well, self-preservation runs strong in my family, okay? When I hear the slightest, and I will tell you, now that was in 2003. We are 14 years later. If I am outside at Keesler Air Force Base at 11.59 on Wednesday... I have to do everything in my power to steal my nerves because at 12 o'clock, that siren goes off. And every time I hear it, my gut instinct is to run, is to hide. We had somebody who thought it would be a good idea to bring that recording back and play it after we deployed. They played it inside the squadron. And our our squadron uh, number two uh, director of operations had to be taken to the hospital because when he dove under the desk, he split his head open. So we all love our lives because we all act to preserve our lives. And Jesus says, if you love yourself more than you love me. Now think about that for a second. Verse 38 Jesus makes a statement to the disciples. This is a verse that's been so badly abused that it's a miracle we can still use it at all. It's a testament to God's preservation of his word that we can still use it at all. Right? You know, we've all got that, that, that black sheep family member that's hard to deal with and, you know, that's just our cross to bear. Or we've got that tough situation at work that we have to deal with and that's just, that's the cross I have to carry. Right? Jesus says here in verse 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Um, Unless that something unpleasant that we call our cross to bear is something like terminal cancer or is my favorite from uh, my my self-aid buddy care classes before we deployed, what they call a sucking chest wound. Right, where the lungs are punctured and the air is being pulled in through the wound. 
Every time I took that class, my question was, wouldn't any chest wound suck? I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not signing up for any of them. But unless that something unpleasant is something that is fatal, we can't call it our cross to bear. Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish men who are living in an occupied nation by Roman soldiers. When he said, unless somebody's willing to bear their cross... Let me translate that for you. Unless you're willing to die for Christ, then you're not worthy of Him. That's what He means. If we say anything else, any inconvenience, any unpleasantness, any unfortunate circumstance is the cross we have to bear, we are misusing that phrase. That's not what it means. The disciples knew what it meant. There was but one cross to bear, and that was the cross that you would carry to your own execution. So when Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, he is talking about being willing to die for the sake of the gospel. He is talking about full commitment to the kingdom of God. This is the kind of commitment that following Christ means. It's a commitment that leads us to go around the world. Uh, right now, throughout the association, they're doing an on-mission celebration. Now, we did not participate in the on-mission celebration because there was a ginormous uh, fee associated with being part of the celebration. And most of us work, and most of us would not have had the time off or the ability to support the, the program fully. But across the association, all the way across the Gulf Coast, Harrison County, Hancock County, Stone County, there are missionaries who have gone out around the world who are here telling churches their story about going out. You have stories and stories and stories and accounts of people who go and they put their life on the line, like Nate Saint, who died going to a tribe in Africa, or South America, I can't remember, I think it was South America, now that I'm thinking about it, wherever it was. He died carrying the gospel. You think about the missionaries who are going to places that are so hostile to the gospel, we don't even name the country that they're going to. We call it the 1040 window because that refers to the the ones that go around this way. Uh, Those are latitude. Yeah, we we refer to the the different uh, latitude rings for the area that they're going to. We don't refer to the country that they're going to because if it's found out that they're going to be a missionary, they will die. Okay? That's what Jesus is talking about, is that kind of a commitment. A commitment that causes us. Now, I don't know any of us. I really, I would be very surprised. It's not impossible. I'd be very surprised if one of you were to tell me that next week you're going to hop on a plane and go to India to be a missionary. That, that would surprise me. Okay? It's not impossible, but it would surprise me. But that same kind of commitment causes us to share the gospel with our neighbor and our coworker and the waitress at the restaurant and the, the checkout person at Walmart. And, and it's the kind of commitment that should cause us to go further than just telling somebody how great it is to follow Jesus but to pour our life into them and help them grow as a disciple. It's the kind of commitment 
that causes us to follow Jesus into whatever circumstances may happen, whether that be imprisonment, whether that be fines, or whether that be death. That's the commitment that Jesus is talking about. And we have so watered down that commitment that we miss it. Now Jesus speaks here in verse 40 about the reward that comes from that commitment. Let me read verse 40 again. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That's an equivalency. That's a a straight line of equivalency for the mission of the disciples. They are sent with the authority and message of Christ. Jesus is sent with the authority and message of the Father. Those who receive the apostles and they receive the message that they have are receiving the word of God. It's an equal. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. It's very simple math. (laughs) Those who receive the apostles are receiving the word of God. Those who receive the message of the gospel of the kingdom are those who are secure in their relationship with Christ. That's what he says here. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive the righteous person's reward. But then he goes a little bit further. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Even though the beginning of this passage that we have today here is hard for us to handle. It's hard because we don't want to hear that Jesus didn't come to bring peace but to bring a sword. It's hard because we don't want to hear, we don't, in our flesh, and you might be a Christian for the last 70 years, I don't know, okay? But it is hard for our flesh to hear that that's the commitment that Christ wants. It is hard for our unsaved selves, the the natural man, to hear that that's the commitment that Jesus wants from us. That is hard because we, deep down in our natural self, don't want to do it. As hard as that is for us to handle, the idea that our allegiance to Christ must be so strong that it takes precedence over and above every other relationship, even above our own personal safety, our own personal comfort, as uncomfortable as that is, this is ultimately a message of hope for those who are going out with the gospel and for those who are listening and accepting the gospel. This is a message of hope. And when we go out to the lost, when we go out in the world and we obey what Jesus told us to do, the end of the book of Matthew, and I've quoted this so many times, y'all are probably sick and tired of hearing it. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is talking about there is show that commitment that hope that we have that hope that we have and it's not hope that something may possibly happen biblical hope is not a possibility it is a certainty we have hope because jesus has promised we have hope because it's god who does the work right it is that hope 
that we are to share with a lost world. It is that hope that we are celebrating when we take the cup and the bread. It is that hope, that celebration, that proclamation that we have peace with God through Christ. In view of this, this celebration, this recognition of the sacrifice of Jesus, this proclamation of our community with the saints, and and I'm glad I don't see anybody looking at their watch, because yes, this is going really fast. Okay? But there's a reason. The reason this is going really fast is because it's so simple. It is so simple. Commitment to Christ is either yes or no. There are no shades of gray. There are no maybes. There are no possibilities. You are either committed or you are not. When we go into this celebration, when we go into this recognition of what Jesus has done, when we take and we break the bread and we drink the cup, when we do that, we are proclaiming the hope that we have in Christ. Every bit as much as when we go to our neighbor and we tell them what the gospel means. Every bit as much when we live a life that shows our commitment to Christ in the face of adversity. Today, right now, outside, there is a thunderstorm coming. There are tornadoes possibly in the area. There is darkness. There is wind. And that's just the weather. Today, out in the world, there are people who don't want to hear this message. And we're commanded to go proclaim it to them. And on top of that... There are people here in this room who need to hear the truth of the gospel again. And I'm one of those people, and so are you. The truth of the gospel is this, that God loved the world so much that in the fullness of time, as He had directed everything to take place, that He sent His Son as a baby, who was born to a poor family in Bethlehem, who was raised by a carpenter and his wife, who was sinless in all ways, who was perfectly obedient, and he lived a life of perfect obedience that we cannot. That means where we fail and we stub our toe and we curse the object that we stubbed our toe on, that means he didn't. Where our parents told us to go clean our bedroom and we grumble and we gripe and we, we protest and, and we don't honor our parents, he did. I don't understand that because I've raised four kids now at least the age of 13 and none of them are obedient like that. But he was, yeah, surprise. <laughs> and that perfectly obedient son was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. See, everybody asked the question, what happens to the innocent person in the the depths of the jungle in Africa who doesn't hear the gospel but then dies? Well, if they're an innocent person, even if they don't hear the gospel, then they'll go to heaven. But the fact of the matter is, there is no innocent person. 
The book of Romans tells us that everybody knows what can be known about God just by looking at nature. We know that He's there. We know that He has a law and we fail to keep it. And so Jesus came and He kept it. And He died. And after three days in the grave, Jesus defeated death. He rose from the grave. He showed us God's stamp of acceptance on His sacrifice. Through that resurrection, we know that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't just sufficient for His own life, because He had no sin debt to pay. And because of His resurrection, we know that it wasn't just sufficient to set us back to a ground zero condition where we could then pick and choose, but because of His resurrection, we know that His righteousness was so abundantly full that it was credited to our account because of God's mercy, because of God's grace, forever. Because of that, we come together, and we've, I'll be honest, I schedule it every six weeks. Other people do it every week, other people do it every month, some people do it once a year. We come together to observe this ceremony, this remembrance of that sacrifice, of that death, and of that promise of the resurrection. But it's because of that, because of how significant this is, that the Apostle Paul, over in the book of 1 Corinthians, tells us that we have to do this in a worthy manner. Now, I will tell you, when he was talking to the Corinthians, there was a lot that they cannot do correctly. There was a lot that they should not do at all. And when they were doing things in an unworthy fashion... They, they, they didn't have little silver plates with little plastic cups, okay? Surprise, Corinth does not look like the modern church in the United States. They didn't have little flat crackers that we buy at Walmart, okay? This was a fellowship meal in the church that the believers would gather for. And when they would gather, they were not loving, they were not caring, they were self-centered, they were gluttonous, they were drunkards, they ignored every aspect of what Jesus commanded except to remember him with this observance. And so Paul, in talking to the church, says that we have to do this in a worthy fashion. In fact, he says, I cannot commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better but for the worse. Everything about the church in Corinth was a train wreck. So Paul sets them straight and he tells them what the Lord's Supper is supposed to look like. Now, I'm going to invite you all to pray before this observance. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and for just a couple of minutes, silently, silently talk to God and ask Him to show any unforgiveness or bitterness that you need to root out any unconfessed sin that you need to deal with between you and Him, then I will lead us in a corporate prayer of repentance, a corporate prayer of blessing over the, the, the elements, and then we will partake. If I don't care the reason, 
But if there is anything that is keeping you from being able to say that you can do this with a clear conscience, feel free to pass the elements. There is no judgment. There is no condemnation. This is serious. This is serious stuff because by this we proclaim the gospel. Every bit as much as when we go through a baptism, we proclaim the gospel with these elements. So right now, let's all silently bow our heads, close our eyes, and just have some time with God, asking Him to show you what you need to be cleansed of. Father, as we have set apart this time to reflect, to pray, to ask you to show us what we need to deal with before we come together in this time. Father, I, I ask on behalf of everyone who's gathered here that you would show us the sin that we need to repent from, the unforgiveness that we have, the bitterness that we have not dealt with, the envy, the strife, the anger, whatever it is in our life that is keeping us from being fully committed to you. Father, I ask that you show it to us, that you give us the strength to repent, and Father, that we would trust your word as you tell us that you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, if we are in Christ, it is done. If we are yours, it is done. Father, we still need to let go of it. Father, I pray as we partake of these elements here in a couple of minutes that we would not lose sight of exactly what it means to share the bread and the cup. That we are participating in a community that stretches back not just 2,000 years of the church, but a community that stretches to the beginning of creation. Father, when you made everything, you said it was good. And then as sin entered the world, it fell. And Father, that sin brought the necessity for the sacrifice of Christ. Father, I pray today that you would find our worship, our participation in this, in this ordinance, to be a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice, a gift, an offering, a step of obedience from your people.